Hello, dreamers. If you're watching this on YouTube, click the subscribe button in the bottom right of this video. Go to Live in the Dream 506 on Instagram and Facebook and give us a like and a follow. And thanks for your support. Keep listening and uh, keep dreaming. My guest today is one of Canada's biggest stand-up comedians. He also launched his own international magazine, The Maritime Edit, to share his love of small towns and cities across Canada with the rest of the world. He's got a new podcast coming out called Mullinger Meets Canadians, and there's a great movie about his early years in stand-up called The Comedian's Guide to Survival, which can be streamed for free right now on YouTube. And he will be performing live for the first time since the entire world shut down in front of an actual audience in person at the Sussex Drive-In on June 12th with the Divorcees and Jamie Camo and the Crooked Teeth. Live entertainment is finally back and media outlets everywhere have been quoted as saying it's better than nothing. We're extremely honored and excited to have him on the show. Please give it up for the hilarious James Mullinger. I'm James Mullinger and I'm living the dream and so are you. So subscribe now to the Living the Dream podcast. Don't hesitate. Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Subscribe to the podcast today. You need it if you want to live the dream. How you doing? I'm good. Sorry. Uh, there we go. Perfect. It's on. How's it going, my friend? You good? No, I'm good. How are you? Not bad at all. Um, it, I've got. Can I just check this? This is working. I'm just going to blow in it. Did you yeah, hear that? it muffled it a bit, but it's good. Oh, perfect. Yeah, yeah. Just to check that it was using that and not the um, not the speakers in the computer. Yep. All set. Um, I'll just check them on the right Wi-Fi. Yep. Perfect. How you been, mate? All right? Good. How have you been? Yeah, not bad. Yeah. How's life in quarantine? Oh, you know, coping. Just about. <laughs> <laughs> I see you've been doing Zoom shows. What's that like? It's uh, it's interesting. It's um, it's just a different learning curve. I mean, a lot of comedians are, bit, are quite uh, dismissive of it. Um, but I've been finding it, um, it's just another learning for like, that, that the thing that the comedians say to me is they always say, Oh, that sounds like a nightmare. And I always think, yeah, but so did stand up before we did stand up. So it's just, you know, and obviously, you know, you can, you can see them, but you can't obviously hear them laughing, but you can see them laughing. And part of me kind of thinks, you know, obviously it's nice to hear laughter, but I mean, ugh, isn't that just all comedians' egos just demanding the worship? Like, just do the, do the job. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's true, for sure. Yeah. So I've been, uh, yeah. I mean, I'm, so I'm looking forward to getting back out there. But I will say this. That, uh, there is something I love about, last night I had two for a, a company in Montreal and a school in St. Stephen. Um, now, 
you know, the journey from here to St. Stephen is, you know, it's a drive. Flight to Montreal. I did these two gigs back to back. Second, it was over. Say goodnight. Within 30 seconds, I was in my underpants in the garden <laughs> drinking a Radler. I mean, there's never an instance where I can be in my underpants 30 seconds after I leave the stage, ever. Even if I ran to my hotel room, it wouldn't happen. So uh, I'm, uh, I'm embracing it. <laughs> yeah, that's a definite benefit for sure. Yeah. I mean, uh, if you wanted to, you could do the show with no pants. Well, that's the thing. I mean, there's actually often times during the show where I emphasize that I am wearing them just to prove. But you're right. I mean, I could easily get away. I could even buy like a shirt that's kind of or even cut it off there and cut the tie off there. So I've even got my kind of even got my like belly button out. That would be a nice feeling. <laughs> and I assume you're not wearing pants right now. Exactly. No, absolutely not. Well, uh, <laughs> Yes. Shorts, shorts. Same thing. We're in the exact same boat. Um, how have you been? How have you been coping with everything? I mean, as good as can be, like like you said, a lot more time spent with family. So I've been I've been able to spend a lot of time with my son, which has been amazing. How old is he? He's nine. Oh nine. Oh well my eldest is nine too, yeah. yeah. So it's nice to um does he play a lot of Fortnite? No, we play NHL. Oh, the hockey no, it's game. nice. But much more sensible. <laughs> uh, yeah, a, 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 a proper sports game with strategy and skill, whereas my son is just into the murder. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the hockey thing actually reminds me. You might have to cut your the midget joke now. They've officially started to rename the age groups. Yes, I know. It's funny. It's It's interesting how many things and it's a terrible thing this is how egotistical comedians are whenever you hear a piece of news that is in sometimes it's good news sometimes it's bad news sometimes it's a, a genuine tragedy uh whatever it is the first thing you think is oh i'm gonna have to drop that joke now <laughs> <laughs> that's so true that's so true uh, it's funny there's um and there's been a few instances recently where things have happened in the news where it's like okay can't do that anymore um, but yeah, it's, I see the, uh, toxic Avengers poster behind you. Yes. Yes. You remember I had that, that night at the, uh, I do. the minister premiere. Yeah. I was going to say, you need to get a minister poster blown up and framed. I know they, um, cool. th th that is true. I think we all need one of those. Yeah. Maybe on day one of shooting the next film, Matt will turn up with, uh, posters for all of us. Yeah. That would be awesome. Yeah. So the next film, has, he's talked a little bit to me about that. Has he publicly spoke about it very much? Um, I, I've just seen him post that it's happening um, and that uh, we're involved, which is a good thing. Yeah. And um, yeah, it's, it's super exciting. I mean, the funny thing with the minister is I was excited to be involved in it even before. Like, I'm trying, I'm trying to think how good I thought it was going to be. Like... I knew it was going to be I, it was going to be good and that I would enjoy it, but I would say that it is it is like the thousand percent better than I ever thought it would be in a million years. Like all the stuff pulled off in post and the, and the green screen stuff, and also just the it is such a faithful and loyal homage to those movies. Um, yeah. The 
like I can honestly say, and I've been involved in low budget things before, and you know, uh, sometimes they look low budget, sometimes they don't. Sometimes, sometimes they. I, I've also been involved in 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 big budget films which haven't come off in any way like you want them to because they haven't got any heart or or energy or whatever it is. And yet, the minister has so much stuff. And I mean, it's just one of those films that I just feel like. For people that like movies like we do, I am basically, I mean, I feel like if Quentin Tarantino saw that movie, he would be sharing the hell out of it. Right. And um, I really, I just want to be at a film festival in America watching people see that because it's completely, it's completely bonkers. It's completely mental. And it's watching it was like the first time I saw like, I don't know, Wolf Cop or, or any of those kind of uh, classic Trash Lee's cinema movies. <laughs> I, we, I, I do this sometimes and I'm guilty of it all the time, but we just kind of jumped into the topic. But for anybody that doesn't know, it's the short film, The Minister, starring yours truly, James Mullinger. And it was a short film passion project by our good friend, Matt Parks. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, he's, and he's planning, he's had quite an amazing response with this short film and he's planning on doing another one. So... I mean, that's, that's exciting. And I, I think he, he was talking about like, uh, it's, it's hunting themed and mm. I don't want to say too much about it cause it, it's not finalized or anything right now. But I mean, just if you've seen the minister and if you haven't go see it. Yeah. But if, if you've seen it, you know what you're in for and it's, it's awesome. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. I guess for, for anyone uh, listening or watching, I mean, the, the great thing with the minister is that if you like, uh, you know, if you like Tarantino, like Tarantino's grindhouse movies, and or indeed like the kind of movies that Tarantino likes or like movies like the Toxic Avenger or trauma movies or any type of kind of, you know, 80s, 90s, VHS, B-movie, actioner. Um, you'll love this. And I think the, the brilliance of it, and again, I mean, you know, the background of it is essentially that Matt Parks, a, a, you know, a legend, a, 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 a colossal film fan, um, had an idea and and pulled it off funded it himself, financed himself, put the whole thing together, um, you know, and, you know, all, entirely filmed in St. John, uh, using, you know, all uh, St. John people like ourselves. And I just think it's so, it's so bonkers and mental that like that film being shown at a big film festival in America would, A, uh, people would just, just love it. I mean, it's, it's just absolutely hilarious. It's, it's just brilliant. Um, um, and also how great for the city of St. John that people will get to see the city of St. John everywhere. I just feel like given, given the right push and got out there, that thing could be huge. It could have, it could have 20 million views on YouTube, which I'm sure it will when they release the, when they decide to release the full thing. Yeah, that's going to be awesome. And it'd be cool if he did the full feature, which I'm sure he's talked about as well. And, and I mean, money is the biggest obstacle for things like this, but yeah. I mean, I'm sure you'd be on board for the full feature and you're, you were amazing. And it was so much fun, like filming those scenes and just the whole thing was just a, a blast. Yeah. I think that was the thing that was fun was that it was, we were all there. It was like-minded people all volunteering our time, all there wanting to do uh, and involved because we, we like those movies. And that's the thing. I mean, I have, you know, I've been incredibly blessed to, to be able to, you know, have a, uh, you know, make a living out of the uh, out of a creative job, which which was always my dream, and I can't believe that that I even get get to do that. But my my hobby is still those those movies. I mean, I I would uh, 
you know, I would show you, I mean, you can, but if I took you around this room behind me, there's just hundreds of, I mean, there's, there's, I've got about nine or 10 different copies of the Toxic Avenger. In fact, I'm going to go and get them right now, just to, just to show why I love being in the Minister's Sewer. Just wait a This is awesome. <laughs> So James was a sort of angel of death for the minister. And this one day in St. John, we filmed out on the point, I forget the name of the place in St. John, but right on the water. And it was so, so much fun and just a great scene, great acting, hilarious. And the props are hilarious. Uh, yeah, here the, we go. Um, the, it was at Cape Spencer, wasn't it? We were at yes, Cape Spencer. Yes. And so that movie, Toxic Avengers, so that's the original cinema poster. That is signed by the director, Lloyd Kaufman, my hero, who, when I was uh, 13 years old, I made a fanzine devoted to trauma movies. That was my first foray into magazine publishing. And always being a kind of, a, you know, entrepreneurial type, I wrote to Lloyd Kaufman to say, hi, I'm your biggest fan. Like, could I do an interview with you? And he said, yes, I'm, I'm, I'm coming to London for the premiere of Chopper Chicks in Zombie Town at the Prince Charles Cinema, Leicester Square, come and interview with me. So I went, like 13, 14 years old, my dad comes with the camcorder, films me interviewing my hero, Lloyd Kaufman, and he gives me that poster. But I mean, this is, this is, my, um, this is my, my passion in life. Like people often ask, like, what do I do to relax? Like, you know, what do I do on my off nights? And of course, because, I, because my job, when I'm not in the middle of a pan global pandemic, is being out and, you know, being out at, clubs theaters but whatever doing shows um on nights off or my my wife's like okay let's go out i'm like no no i want to stay in i want to stay in here in my loft which i'm well aware looks a bit like a doll's house by the perspective but um but what i do is i set up with, with all my old tapes so like here's here's an original uh time code uh which was sent to a video shop of uh, toxic avenger 2 Toxic Avenger 3 on Blu-ray there. Uh, Toxic Avenger, that's a uh, that's a Dutch release. Uh, same movie there. That's the Russian release. Uh, that's the uncut Dutch release of the second one. Uh, that is the UK uh, big box uh, rental version of the second one. And this is the first one I ever owned when I was about, well, it must have been around that time, 13, 14. It's a beautiful embossed, embossed Toxic Avenger cover. Um, but famously, this version is cut to shreds. Like every single piece of violence is cut out of it. The the BBFC, uh, the British Board of Film Classification, which is the British MPAA, were very strict. I actually didn't realize this was in it. It's funny I was just saying that. So this this one was, you know, all the violence was cut because I was such a nerdy thirteen year old. I obviously bought a bootleg pirate version of the uncut version. And then look, I've made a list here of all the scenes that were cut out, <laughs> right? And it reads like a serial killer's diary. Listen, <laughs> so this is a Toxic Avenger, rental version. Six minutes, nine seconds. Sly and Bozo killing boy on bicycle scene begins. <laughs> uh, backstreet fight, mugging. Uh, oh, uh, blind girl's guide dog shot. I mean, <laughs> police discovering bodies, henchman's head being crushed, Wanda masturbating in sauna. Okay, I, this bit's going to be cut. I hope before um, the uh, the broadcast at the. Um, 
the, yeah, yeah. This is, this is not for the drive-in. Um, and just some further emphasis, just in case anyone watching has not quite ascertained how mental I am. Um, Monster in the Closet is one of their uh, more critically acclaimed films. There's the DVD, Monster in the Closet. There's the uh, German release, Monster in the Closet. The Polish release, Monster in the Closet. The German release, Monster in the Closet. And the original uh, UK release of Monster in the Closet. What's it about, you ask? <laughs> A monster in the closet. <laughs> so, so, that, so basically, if... If you just watched all that and thought, this guy's mental, I hate those movies, you won't like The Minister. <laughs> but if you just watched that and thought, well, that James Mullinger's far more sensible than I thought he was, <laughs> watch The Minister. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's awesome. So you, you actually interviewed him when you were young. Y yeah. Yeah, literally, like, um, met him then. And, and actually, well, not only stayed in touch with him, but also I'm still kind of in touch with him now. Like, um, I interviewed him for a podcast a year or two ago, but like every now and again, he retweets stuff, but it's quite random. Like I'll post something like, you know, on Twitter, like I own five copies of Monster in the Closet and he won't retweet that. But then I'll post performing tonight at the Imperial Theatre in St. John and Lloyd Kaufman will retweet it. And I'm thinking, I'm not sure <laughs> that the Troma followers globally <laughs> give a damn that an English comedian they've never heard of who lives in a town they've never heard of is playing a theatre tonight but anyway I, I'm sure he's, he's just doing it to be nice but it still means every time you see yourself get retweeted by your hero it's a nice thing so that's that really answers the question because people always say to me in interviews they say like, like what do you do to relax and it's hard to explain well, it's certainly hard to explain without the medium of video um because when, you know, if I'm speaking to a journalist over the phone and they say, what do you do? And I'm like, oh, well, I sit in my loft and I watch videos. And they're like, oh, you mean Netflix? No, videos. I like videos. And they go, oh, but are there video players? Do they still work? I'm like, yeah, I've got six video players. I sound, it sounds like I'm joking or I've just lost it. Whereas you know that this is all true, but it's easier to explain with with. Exactly. And I've seen your blockbuster shelf in your basement. So I know that it's not it's not bullshit. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and that is an important point to make. Again, uh, for anyone listening, um, you have seen this uh, with your own eyes that I have uh, original blockbuster video shelving from the blockbuster at Lancaster Mall. Um, some people might remember the blockbuster. Some people might if you've just moved to St. John. You might not know it, but you will know it if you've asked for directions to Jungle Gyms, because people would have sent you to where Blockbuster <laughs> used to be. <laughs> and, um, and I mean, I guess I was fortunate in that, that Blockbuster, I mean, I remember shopping there on visits here 10, 15, 20 years ago, but of course the building lay empty for a long time. And the lovely gentleman who runs or owns Lancaster Mall messaged me saying, I hear you like videos, do you want to come and get the shelves? And um, anyway, so now I have a video shop in my basement, which I actually just saw the tragic news today that the video, the DVD rental shop in St. Stephen is the latest uh, victim of the pandemic shutdown and they're closing, which again, it's interesting because they've been there 19 years, a very successful DVD rental business um, up until obviously now. Um, but if you said to any of your friends in other parts of the world that there was a DVD rental shop still 
operating. They would be like, what? But um, but this is, again, one of the things I love so much about living in New Brunswick, or indeed the Maritimes, is we, is we have quite a few. Yeah, it, it does suck. Like you said, it sucks that it's the latest victim of the pandemic. But it is hilarious that you still see those things in small towns because people do still rely on that. Netflix costs money and people don't have a lot of money, like no matter where you go. That's There's it. always going to be those levels of classes that need those resources. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And also, I mean, trying to pick a bloody movie on Netflix is but Also, there is, of course, the other fact that there is a ton of movies not on there. I mean, true. you know, there's so, well, I mean, a perfect example is like, and you just, you, you only discover this. Well, I've, I've been discovering a lot during the pandemic because I'll suddenly think, oh, I want to watch that movie. And it's not on any, and I have, I have all the streaming platforms and, and well, I say all of them, you know, I've got Crave, Netflix, Prime, but there's so many movies that aren't on any of them. And then you have to rent it for like $8. And you think I could have gone in a shop and rented it for two, but it's eight. I mean, another example is my kids just watched on Netflix the Ashley, the, the Olsen twin movie, It Takes Two, which I didn't know was a work of bona fide genius. And I'd never <laughs> would have thought to watch it. And they watch it every day. They're obsessed with the other six and nine, my sons. They're obsessed with the Olsen twins now. Now, uh, I, we, we watched this movie like 20 times, It Takes Two. So I'm like, oh. Uh, and, and my kids said, yeah, I wonder if they've made any other movies. And I'm like, well, yeah, they've made millions because every time I'm looking for VHSs in Value Village, there's always just a stack of these bloody Olsen twin movies. But anyway, so I look for them. Nowhere on demand uh, do they appear. I mean, you can rent them on YouTube for like, again, six bucks or whatever. But anyway, so of course, then I go to Value Village and I can't find them anywhere. Normally, when I wasn't looking for them, they were everywhere. But then, actually, managed to find them at that at that um, the uh, it's not it's it's a is it the Mission Refuge shop at Loch Lomond Mall? Uh, they had the full set again. So for the full every Olsen Twin movie on VHS for the price it would cost to rent one on YouTube. This has just turned into a forty-five minute advert for VHS. <laughs> I figured it might. I was prepared <laughs> yeah. for this. Uh, hey drive-in music fans ANBL wants to take a minute to thank all of the volunteers and organizers for keeping live entertainment alive with some pretty ingenious thinking to keep it physical distancing friendly and they also want to thank everyone who plans on camping for making the wise decision to stay here at the campsite Friday night after the show if you're going to be enjoying some drinks don't forget to stay safe have some water enjoy the music and most of all, have fun. Cheers, everybody. So maybe for like a step back, like you said, you interviewed your hero. I mean, was that always something you wanted to do? Like, I know you, later on you, you were interviewing celebrities for movies and um, comedians as well. Like, how did you get your start in that? Um, it's a good question. I, I guess, I mean, I was certainly making this fanzine was something that i was obsessed with and my dad definitely kind of gave me the, you know gave me this kind of love of of paper and love of collecting and love of just kind of keeping things and i always kept scrapbooks as a kid and i was always cutting out pictures i mean my earliest memories are being six years old cutting out pictures of video covers from video catalogs and putting them in scrapbooks so when i started this fanzine um i was just thinking of if i have a copy of it to hand um but I basically, yeah, I basically just, it was just all photocopied pages. And yeah, I don't know. I think it was just born out of a love of, uh, of collecting and a love of paper. And, um, 
and yeah, I guess that kind of transitioned into it made sense to want to speak to heroes. And um, and I think one of the things I learned very quickly, again, I mean, I was very young when I wrote that first letter to him, was that, you know, when you write to people, they will respond. And I mean, I have, I have correspondence that I wrote to Kate Winslet once when I became obsessed with her character, Marianne, in Sense and Sensibility, uh, when I was in uh, high school, what would be, you know, same as high school. And... Um, and she wrote back and I have about 20 letters to and from with Kate Winslet. Um, and then oddly, this kind of segues into, I invited her to a premiere of a trauma movie. Um, uh, because again, I stayed in touch with trauma and I kept going to these premieres. And um, and she never replied and I thought, oh, I've, I've overstepped the mark. And this was obviously before she was superstar Kate Winslet. Um, but what was kind of funny was she eventually wrote back and said, sorry, I, did, I meant to get back to you, but I was in, in L.A. begging this director for this really cool job that could change my life. Now, of course, that we now know is Titanic, but it was um, it was quite interesting, which um, which, again, is a is a the most successful movie or one of the most successful movies ever financially, creatively. It is the least successful <laughs> movie <laughs> Uh, uh, but some people listening will beg to differ. So I, I, again, everyone, I mean, clearly I am not in a position to diss anyone for liking shit movies. <laughs> I refer to Exhibit A. <laughs> um, so, um, but yeah, so so I guess, I don't know where that, that, that came from, but I would say one of the few things that I think, if I have, if I have a skin in life, it would be that, that realisation that, if you don't ask, you don't get. And at 13, I wrote to my hero and said, you know, can I interview you? And he said, yes. Uh, 17, 18, I wrote to Kate Winslet. She replies. And then basically that became what my job was at GQ, which was basically trying to secure celebrities for things. And again, similarly, wrote to Seinfeld, my comedy hero, 20 times trying to get an interview, was told no over and over and over again. And I kept trying different techniques, different ways, different approaches. Um, wrote to everyone, his agent, his manager, him, his assistant. They kept saying no, and they kept saying no until they said yes. And I'm still um, operating under that same thing now for the my magazine, The Maritime Edit. You know, I'm doing the same thing with uh, Sidney Crosby and Ellen Page. Like, you know, they said they're too busy, and I'm saying, well, how can we make it happen? Stephen King's another one. I've been trying to get an interview with Stephen King um, for some time. And, uh, and as I'm sure you know, the wonderful story about how a teacher in Sussex, um, a teacher at Sussex High School, again, and I love people that do this, she had the tenacity and the foresight and the genius to write to Stephen King to say she was teaching one of his books to her Sussex High School students. Would he come and speak? And Stephen King drove himself from his home in Bangor, Maine uh, to Sussex and delivered a blisteringly powerful, inspirational speech um, and I, I've, I mean, I've been to Stephen King's house. I've, 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 I've written articles about touring uh, Maine, going to all the Stephen King destinations. Um, I'm a huge fan. I've written to him 50 times. Never had any luck, but I have once performed on stage at Sussex High School. So I feel that's been very. I've been very close to my hero uh, in that respect, and that he too has played the uh, the Sussex High School stage. Um, but interestingly, that. Footage, the footage of him at Sussex High is actually on YouTube. If you Google Stephen King, Sussex, New Brunswick, um, the footage is there. And um, I think that's, it's always been something I admire in people, is just that, is that thing of just knowing 
you know, in, in, you know, I guess there's a fine line between tenacity and uh, being annoying and and bugging people, and it's kind of knowing what the right way to kind of um, do that is. And again, similarly with with, with stand up, um, it, there's definitely a misnomer. Certainly, being a comedian on the East Coast, and 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 again, I just love the name of your of your podcast because it's like living living the dream, and that's the thing. Like I've said that since I got here, I feel like living here i am really am living the dream and it's it's that thing where there's uh i mean certainly i would say on the east coast but in canada as a whole this is not the place to be if you want to be the type of comedian who's going to wait for the phone to ring or wait for their agent to ring them but this is the place to be if you want to you know work hard and 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 you know make make the dream happen yourself and and i think there's often a People often say, well, how did you get that gig? And how, or how did you get, how did this happen? And I'm like, well, every single, I probably send out about 500 emails a day. You know, um, how did I get CBC's debaters? Well, I wrote to them hundreds of times, pitching myself, of course. They didn't phone me. I, um, very little, I would say, of, you know, and I, I work when, when, I'm, when we're not in a global pandemic, but even when we are, I mean, I'm still doing Zoom gigs, but say if, say if I'm doing an average of four or five gigs a week, I would say one out of those five has come to me cold. The other four have been, you know, fought for and chased and begged for. Um, so, yeah, I guess that, um, that, uh, that thing of like knowing how to a approach people and beg is, uh, is something that's basically been the story of my life. <laughs> <laughs> for lack of a better term. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, some of the people that you've interviewed, like, did your love of comedy precede your love of film or vice versa? I think um, they, but film could definitely came first. I think my love of comedy came about um, definitely in my early teens when I was kind of, I was not, um, you know, I wasn't very popular at school, didn't have, didn't have many or indeed any friends, but um was also not academic or athletic. So I was kind of this triple bill of failure for my parents. It's nice to have the full set. And, um, and it's, it's kind of, you know, normally like if your child is not academic, you can at least say that they were good at sport or if they're popular, but they aren't academic. I had none of it going on. So, and I was sick a lot. So I was at home a lot watching movies, going to video shops. Again, my whole childhood was basically spent in video shops looking I love the smell of videotapes. Uh, just in videotapes, looking at videos. Um, at home, coming up, with, wasn't allowed to watch a lot of the movies I wanted to watch. So I would write a lot of stories about what I thought the films would be about. So I have binders of books where it would be like my version of what I think Emilio Estevez's wisdom uh, is about, what Stephen King's maximum overdrive, what I think the story would be. And I, I would write those things. Um, but I think my love of comedians came when I first kind of started listening to comedy tapes of people like, you know, whether it be Robin Williams or and, and later on kind of obviously Bill Hicks and Dennis Leary. And, and what I think I found fascinating and obviously British comedy. And again, my dad introduced me to Monty Python and the young ones and all that stuff when I was in my kind of, you know, well, very young, probably far too young to be watching shows like that. Um, and I think what I found fascinating about it was that comedians, they made me laugh, they made me feel happy, but also that when I read their autobiographies, they f seemed to be like weird, unpopular oddballs like me, but then they did this weird job where they walked on the stage in front of thousands of people, even though they had 
you know, insecurity issues and they had um, self-esteem issues. And in many cases, you know, uh, you know, paranoid insecurity. I mean, all the all the things that, that most performers have. But but at that point, I couldn't understand it. I was like, surely these are the most confident people. Why are they like that? So that was certainly the first time that I started thinking about the possibility of one day being a comedian was I was listening to these things, loving how much joy they brought me, but then thinking to myself, well, these I've read their, the, you know, whether it's John Cleese or whoever's autobiography or, uh, you know, reading about Robin Williams's, uh, you know, struggles with, uh, you know, uh, self-confidence or, or depression, all those things. And, um, and it was then that I kind of thought, well, maybe if these guys can do it, maybe I could do it. And that was so I think those things kind of coalesced definitely in my um, you know, teenage years. But I definitely, as I said, I was still unable to and certainly did not have the confidence to go and speak to a boy or girl in my class. So I was not the class clown. I was not doing school you know, on stage performances. And, and even now there's, you know, I still I mean, I still feel like I'm that person. I feel like like anything in life. You teach yourself to do something. It's like, I mean, I've literally just taught my six-year-old to ride a bike uh, this week. Now, it's funny when you're when this thing that we all do naturally, when you're trying to explain to someone what it is they have to do just to get moving off that bike. And again, how anyone teaches themselves the job that they do. And, you know, uh, you know, a mechanic is probably very intimidated the first time they, they lie under a car. Someone who you know, jumps out of a skydives out of a plane is probably very intimidated the first time they do that. But then if it becomes their job, it's probably like literally climbing into a warm bed uh, day after day. And similarly with stand up, I'm, I'm, I absolutely stand by the fact that anyone could do it. And I know that because I do it. And uh I had no confidence. No, it is simply get up there as many times as possible. The only thing you need, obviously, is a is a thick skin and a very, very pathetic, desperate neediness to be uh, to be liked. Because when you think about the ridiculousness of when you start out, when I started in 2005, you know, for for every 20 gigs, 19 of them, you're being booed off. Just dozens or hundreds of people just shouting at you that they hate you and it's not that they hate you know your music or the play that you're in they hate you it's you they hate you, you and you can't even share that hatred with with the rest of the band because it's you and you can't share that hatred with the writer of the play because no it's you yeah it's 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 it, 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 i'm the thing that they hate and taking those train rides home um, night after night and quite often I'd be in the middle of nowhere in England and miss the last train I'd be sleeping on a station platform uh, just shivering cold knowing that you know everybody hated me and, and, and the, not even knowing if I was ever going to get better at this thing but then keep doing it keep doing it keep doing it night after night and then you have one show where it goes well everyone loves you that's how pathetically needy comedians are that we would we will go through 19 it's like go it's like go, it's like choosing to get beaten up 19 times just to get one hug that's basically uh, <laughs> what it is so uh yeah that's um that, uh, yeah, there's a very long answer to uh, uh, the question, so I'm sorry. <laughs> no, that's great. Um, I was kind of wondering, when did you know that you made it? Like, you, you do the, every comedian talks about bombing, and like you said, 19 out of 20. But when did you really feel like you'd kind of gotten over that hump? Um, good question. Yeah, great question. Um, well, I, I, I don't think like I have. I mean, I, I, I feel like... Well, you have. Well, well, that's very kind, but um, but, but I, I, I guess what 
I guess what how, what the, the transition that kind of occurs is you go from at first when you have an open when you start out and you have an open mic gig booked for next week, as soon as it's booked, you start dreading it. Right. And so every waking moment, there's not a single. It's like when you've got something bad going on in your life and you can't shake it. When you've got a gig, if, if it's a Wednesday and you've got a gig next Wednesday for those seven days, you just every time you, you relax for a second, you go, oh, fuck, I'll go. No, I've got a gig next week. Like it's just you, you. And basically over the months or years, that time period goes down from like a week to a few days to then you just wake up on the day and go oh no I've got a gig tonight and you dread it all day to then you just dread it when you get to the club and then so basically that, that period gets shorter and then you get to the kind of stage now where you know I still I'm, I'm, I'm not nervous as such I'm apprehensive because I want it to go well um, but I am um, but basically I'm backstage knowing that if I do everything right now my nerves now generally are just wanting to make sure that I go out there in the best possible way and have the best possible show. Um, but in terms of I improving, I mean, I guess, in, again, I guess what, what I mean when I say that I definitely haven't got there yet is that, you know, you go from getting no laughs to getting some laughs to getting laughs in every joke. And now I would say I'm at a point where, you know, I'm very proud of the fact that if I do a theatre to... Um, and again, I mean, the, 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 the beautiful thing now is, is that I do a mixture of, and sometimes I'm doing obviously corporate gigs to people who've never heard of me and I have to win them over. Sometimes I'm playing to a theatre of 800 people who are there specifically to see me. So they've kind of, then, then there are nerves from that because it's like they have an expectation. I don't want to let them down. But equally, the pleasurable thing is they, they already in some way like something about, they don't hate me. I don't have to win them over at the top. They've already... And, and I think that's an interesting thing with the, the different demeanors of how you walk on stage. Like if I walk on stage in Yuck Yucks, Vancouver, where 400 people have come out that night not to see me, maybe 20 of those 400 might be there to see the, the, me. The other 380 are there for a comedy night at Yuck Yucks, Vancouver, and they have no idea who's on the bill. So how I walk out on stage there is very different to how I would walk out on stage in front of... 800 people who are there to see me inevitably because uh, one crowd I have to win over the other already know who I am so um, I think what I find but but it's I'm proud of the fact that now if I'm doing a, I would I would generally hope or expect that almost every joke will get a decent sized laugh um, and I'm proud of that I do this build up the setup punchline laugh next thing um, and that to me is a successful show and all the rest of it. But then I work with a comedian like, for instance, Derek Sagan, um, the French Canadian comedian based in Montreal, won the Sirius XM's Best Top Comic uh, Award a few years ago. And, and he just blows the roof off, does a different show every time I see him. Improvise, he can improvise for an hour. I saw him at the Three Mile here in St. John and he didn't like a guy in the front row's red jacket. So he just roasted this red jacket guy for... Oh, someone there. Hi. Sorry. How much longer? Uh, fifth, perfect. 15, 15 minutes. I'll be there. Perfect. Okay. Thank you. That's my wife, Pam, everyone. Say hi. Hey, Pam. <laughs> um... And he um, he wrote uh, and he will just wrote, he wrote this guy in the red jacket just for, you know, for an hour, basically. And the point here is, is that the audience didn't breathe. Like it wasn't like I do a joke set up. Ha ha ha. Stop. 
they didn't catch their breath. So I, when I watched Derek, I felt like an imposter. And I felt like, you know, I felt like I, I may as well give up. So we, we all have those different, everyone has those comedians they look up to in that way. Um, but in terms of like making it, in terms of making it, like, I guess for me, the, the dream and the end game and the goal was always simply to be able to feed a family doing stand-up comedy, which already is a, is a crazy pipe dream. So the fact that I got there, when people now ask me, what's my new dream? I say, well, there isn't a new dream. The, the new dream is to sustain this. Because this is hard enough to do. To, to, to put food on the table doing stand-up is, is a ridiculous dream and it came true. So my dream is not to, you know, do an arena tour or be in an Adam Sandler movie or move to LA. My dream is to stay living in New Brunswick uh, and keep feeding this lot, uh, telling jokes. That, that's the dream. And, um, and that's, you know, really what... Uh, so basically what, what I wake up every day with my one mission, it's to simply sustain uh, what I have now, which again, I think one of the greatest mistakes that businesses make in life is trying to over uh, reach and overstretch. And somewhere, some people would say I'm an, a, unambitious, you know, and it's why, for example, I wouldn't fit in at a place like, you know, I don't know, the Just for Loves Comedy Festival where everyone's trying to, you know, do deals and get this and get this. You know, I, I don't want to have to, I don't, you know, I've been offered auditions in, places like Toronto, I'm like, there's no point me going for the audition because I'm not going to move there. I'm not even going to go there for, for, for three months. I came here to be with my family and do the job. So, um, you know, for my part, it's definitely a case of just wanting to sustain uh, what I have and somehow work hard to make sure that I can keep doing it. And, um, you know, right now that's Zoom gigs and obviously drive-in gigs. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Um, I wanted to ask you about like some of the people that you did interview, like Robin Williams, Seinfeld, George Clooney, Tom Cruise. Uh, like, what were some of the highlights of interviewing those people? And like, do you have any crazy stories from each? Like, did did Tom Cruise try to get you to join Scientology? Yes, good question. <laughs> <laughs> um, Tom Cruise was. I think what was interesting was was for us doing that show. It was quite difficult getting it off the ground because the aim of it was to do a, a funny film review show. And there'd been quite a few prank shows done before where people would like, there was a famously Dennis Pennis played by Paul Case sprayed water on Tom Cruise and Tom Cruise did not take kindly to it. So everyone was worried we were trying to do that. But actually what we were trying to do was actually make people laugh. So um, what got the show commissioned was actually George, George Clooney basically got it commissioned where we asked him a question. And again, it, granted it isn't the funniest joke in the world, but it was uh, shortly after 51st Dates had come out and he was in a movie called The Descendants and I can't remember exactly what it was, but basically the joke was something like, uh, the plot is this, and it, was, it sounded similar to this. And we said, is it a funny version of 50 First Dates? Anyway, Clooney laughed. And again, I mean, Clooney's a great actor. He's also Mr. Charming, Charmy Pants, and knew what, I mean, so I'm sure he didn't find it as funny as he pretended. But basically what we had was a piece of footage of me asking this joke we'd written, and Clooney giving the biggest belly laugh and boom, every commissioner in town saw that and went, yeah, let, let's do it. Um, uh, and so similarly, we were lucky with other people. And it was always the biggest stars, of course, as you often hear, that were the nicest. You know, Tom Cruise, very charming. I can't remember the question I asked. Um, it's on YouTube somewhere, but he, he was very nice. Robin, Robin Williams was very funny. And then Seinfeld was just a dream. And, and Seinfeld, um, again, been my hero for many, many years. Um, and he, in many ways, inspired... Uh, 
me making a big life change and 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 that was simply that he um I was interviewing him in in New York in 2013 it was a great moment like meeting my comedy hero for the first time I asked him all the questions I was supposed to ask him for the for the show and for the magazine and um at the end I thought well I'll ask him a question that I've always wondered myself and I said you know you famously left the TV show Seinfeld your sitcom when it was at its kind of commercial and critical and creative peak, like the fans wanted more, uh, the network wanted more, you clearly hadn't run out of ideas. Why not do just one more season? And uh, and he was being offered more money than God to do it, and he just walked away. And I never understood. I said, why not do? Why didn't you just do one more? And he said, that's simple, James. He said, because that's what everybody expected me to do. And he said, there's a good life lesson for you. He said, make a list of all the things in life that everybody expects you to do and do the opposite. So um, six months later, I was on a plane to St. John, New Brunswick. That's, that's a really cool story. Wow, yeah, that makes you think. Cause I mean, it, it, it's true. And like Dave Chappelle kind of did the same thing with, with his sketch show, yes. offering him as much money as you could possibly throw at somebody. And he, he left cause they were trying to have some, put their fingers on it, you know what I mean? That's it. That's it. And there's definitely something to be said for it. And, and of course, it's one of those, it's one of those pieces of advice that it doesn't work in any context. Obviously, like you know, if you and I are standing on a, a cliff top, and you don't expect me to jump off the cliff, I'm not going <laughs> to jump off just because it's what you don't expect. Right? <laughs> but but from a, and and of course, inevitably in life, you know, it's not foolproof. But what what I what what I took from it at the time was definitely that. We were in London, on paper had great lives, you know, on paper, you know, my wife had an amazing job uh, as a publishing, one of the most powerful women in, in British magazine publishing, publishing director of, of one of the leading magazines there, uh, incredibly well paid job, but of course, uh, in London, most expensive city in the world, that doesn't mean anything, the money comes in, the money goes out, um, my salary didn't even cover childcare, so basically, I'm working for free to pay a stranger to be with the kids that I wanted to be with. But on paper, it looked very glamorous. It looked, you know, a TV show and this touring comedian and all this stuff. But the reality was, and I think basically that is what both she and I took away from it, was that we realized that if we, everyone expects, everyone looks at our lives and goes, well, you've got this great life here. You're clearly going to just keep doing the same thing. And when we thought about it, we thought, where would we be in 10 years if we stayed there? And we realized in 10 years, we'd be in the exact same spot. We wouldn't be... Uh, earning more wouldn't be happier wouldn't have a garden wouldn't have any of that stuff it would just be the same thing and we thought we've got to make a big a big decision here so that's when we said well let's uh and they say the most stressful thing in life is is moving house having a baby or changing jobs we did all three and factored in london to new brunswick at the same time yeah that's awesome um, I had a bunch of fan questions, but uh, I have two that I really like, so I'm just going to rapid fire those at you right now and try to get sure. you out of here. Sure. Um, the, the two that I really liked and one that I was wondering myself is, did you actually wet yourself on stage like in the movie, The Comedian's Guide to Survival? It's an excellent question. And it's one that people, <laughs> people ask when they see that movie. Um, lots of things that happened in that movie did happen to me. That one didn't. Um, <laughs> however... Interestingly, when the movie came out, a lot of comedians wrote to me asking if we had basically softened a more dramatic story, i.e. pooping yourself on stage. And I basically discovered that 
almost every comedian I know that has been doing it for 20 years or so has had a night where, because you're on the road, you're eating garbage, you have a bad stomach, you're up there. Every comedian I know has had a, And of course, when you wet yourself, you can't hide that. That's a big wet patch. But what you can't, you can shart and, <laughs> and, um, and no one knows. So I would say 50, about at least half of all comedians I know admitted to me after that movie came out that there's been a night where they've basically done a bit of brown water in their undies and had to stay up there, of course, <laughs> and carry on. And, and some people, it was full-blown turds, full-blown turds in there. So, uh, no, that, that was... <laughs> <laughs> so you want to be a stand-up comedian? Yeah, better get used to uh, pooping yourself. <laughs> Um, uh, and the other one that is just a very general but cool question what is the highlight of your career good question it is tonight if anyone's listening to this tonight at the Sussex, tonight at the Sussex Drive-In tonight's going to be the nice. night right? yes uh, anyone listening to this uh, through your radios here at the Sussex Drive-In uh, if you look up at the um, I'll be listening to this too right now. So we're all in it together, as we're all sick of Trudeau telling us. We're all in it together, <laughs> as he's on his daily cash giveaway. He's loving that, isn't it? Trudeau's daily cash giveaway. We've got money for you. You've got money for me, Trudeau. None for you. Oh, we're all there with our virtual scratch cards every day, waiting to see if it's going to be our day to get some of our taxpayers' money. Yeah, it's like, oh, oh, jolly good. You're giving all the lots of money to the students, are you, that haven't done a day's work? Oh, lovely. Actually, why am I doing this? This is part of my act that I'm going to be doing on stage here at the Sussex Drive-In. You're going to have to hear this twice, through the radio both times. <laughs> But what I'm trying to say is, look up now, and uh, I'm going to be by the side of the stage waving at you uh, as you listen to this pre-show. Um, uh, well, my highlight, highlight um, I mean, I mean, it literally would probably have to be the first, the first Harbour Station show, which literally just uh, legitimately changed my life. And I, in that CBC documentary that um, those lovely people at Hemmings House made about about that process. Um, there was a, a scene at the end where I sit on the beach by the Gondola Point ferry boat and I say, you know, not a day in my life will go by without me thinking of of that show. Of, at that point, it was the previous night, the 28th of April 2006. Um, and that's proven true. Like, there's literally not a day, like, whenever, every day I'm hit with, you know, worries, fears, concerns, insecurities, when I ever work again, all these things. And the thing that I always remind myself is, is when even if it all ended tomorrow, I once, you know, stood up on stage and made 5,000 people laugh, um, you know, for an hour and a half like that, that's creatively one of my proudest moments and something that I just, you know, I mean, I still watch it and cry a little bit. That's so uh, that, that's probably. <laughs> nice. Well, we're all excited to see you. Everybody's pumped to finally do anything. So, I mean, <laughs> and I, <laughs> I haven't we, seen you we since be Kingsbury. That's it. Yeah, that's it. I mean, we're all so excited. You're right. It's like it could literally be like a like a a, a poo sandwich eating contest that we were all <laughs> competing in. But we would just be so happy to see each other outside of the house that we'd be like, "Yes, sign me up." <laughs> yep, I know. And it's going to be great. Uh, Jamie Camo and the Crooked Teeth on as well and the divorcees. So it's going to be awesome.
an incredible night. Um, what a lineup and and what a joy. It's funny. I haven't worked with uh, Jeff and the team uh, at Poker Logan before, and what an incredible group of people. Like, I mean, it's I, again I, now. I'm just thinking, like, how have I not? Again, this is the funny thing. People think it's small here, and I joke about how small it is here. But it's also not small because there's hundreds of thousands of people here, and not everyone, of course, does know everyone. But I basically my my, my overriding emotion these past few weeks has been how the hell have I not been blessed enough to work with this team of people before? So professional, so lovely, know how to put on a great show. And actually, if people are listening to this, okay, well, if we're going to know it, actually, we're going to know, right? We're going to know, Chris, right now, here in Sussex, next Friday, in brackets, right? We're going to know how many people are actually listening to this, because I want everyone to honk their horns when I say go, as a massive shout-out to Jeff and all of the legends that have put on tonight's event to support the Sussex Rotary Club. So, three, two, one, honk your horns! (laughs) Right, literally, if only two horns... (laughs) And everyone's going to think they're really really rude. They'll be like, who's honking now? Anyway, um, but yeah, just they they are just such awesome, awesome people. And I just can't believe I'm getting to share a stage with with two such incredible bands. And uh, and I'm also um, extremely honoured that you asked me to do this because, like I say, I love you. I love everything about you, and I love your podcast. So this is uh, this is a match made in heaven. I'm giving you a virtual hug right now. Uh, Blaine Higgs would not like this, <laughs> like uh, like seeing hugging, but it's it's real. Well, likewise, man. I, it's been a while since I've seen you, but always a pleasure. And thank you so much for doing this. Uh, it's it's an honor and a pleasure to talk to you. And it was a, a ton of fun. Thank you so much. Appreciate it, man. And uh, I will see you next Friday, or if you're listening in Sussex tonight. <laughs> awesome, man. Thank you so much. Take care, brother. See you soon. Cheers. Cheers. Hey Dreamers, I just want to take a second to give a shout out to the true heroes from the Sussex Drive-In live show, all of you designated drivers out there. ANBL would like to thank you, the people who made sure the roads were safe this weekend, for stepping up and making sure everyone made it home with only great memories. Thanks so much to all the designated drivers. You're the real stars of the show.